Today we're going to talk about what I call the three big lies that uh, have kind of perpetuated themselves in the sport of volleyball over the last almost four decades since I first started coaching. And um, by lies, I don't mean lies that people tell, but they're what I would call misconceptions of how skills should be performed or understanding the lack of understanding of biomechanics of certain skills. Uh, so we're going to we're going to address those. We're going to talk about those today. And those are um, uh, setting footwork and uh, the evolution of setting footwork over the last uh, 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 several years, uh, many years, actually. Um, the biomechanics of the arm swing, the proper biomechanics of the arm swing, and then the, the age old adage of the pre hop or no pre hop when you're digging a ball in volleyball. Uh, I think the first thing I want to talk about is we're going to talk about setting footwork. Um, for a lot of the last 40 years, whenever coaches would discuss setting footwork, the one phrase that was constantly heard more than anything else was uh, the term square up. Coaches always talk about squaring up. Get to the ball, get your feet stopped, square up to the hitter. Uh, that was probably said all the time, more than anything else. Uh, even today, when I talk to kids at setting camps, I mean, it's the one thing that you ask them, uh, how many times do your coaches tell you to square up? And everybody raises their hand and just kind of laughs about it because it's something that's said over and over again. And um, I think a lot of times when we talk about setting footwork, uh, it's, it's a lot different now than it was uh, back in the 1980s, but we don't understand how the biomechanics of, of setting a volleyball actually work. And uh, I go back to when I first started coaching in the early 1980s. I was watching some video of a setter from China. And uh, within a short period of time, there was a ball passed behind her, and she moved off the net uh, about the 10-foot line, got off, turned off of her left leg, uh, pulled her hips back towards the net, and set the quick set for a kill. I mean, uh, it moved the ball moved about uh, – the ball was set about 10, 15, 20 feet. It's a great set. And then a little while later, the ball was passed probably five, six feet off the net, and she jumped around the ball off one leg and set the quick set again uh, for another kill. And so one of the things that I got to thinking about after watching that match was we should train setters in situations, not just in the same type of footwork all the time. One of the things we want to look at is we want to look at uh, what situations occur when you play, and then those situations should be, should be trained on a regular basis uh, over and over again. And generally, the more difficult the situation, the more time it takes and the more reps it takes to master that situation. And generally, the easier the situation, which is what I would call the square up move, um, you know, those sets are pretty easy to make because generally they're close to the net. Uh, the ball's passed high. Uh, they're not difficult to get to the ball. So those are probably situations that you train less uh, just so you're going to be uh, uh, well-rounded in all areas. And I think the, the biggest thing that, that the misconception that a lot of coaches had for a long time was uh, that you get to every ball and you stop. That's what every coach would say, get to every ball, stop. And one of the things that we have to understand is that uh, the ball controls what the setter has to do. The setter can't control the ball until uh, he or she gets the ball in her hands. And uh, the movement of the ball, the pace of the ball, the tempo of the ball, the location of the ball uh, is going to require how you set the ball. You're not always going to be able to get to every ball. You're not always going to be able to set off two feet. You're not always going to be able to get stopped. And uh, I'll address that a little bit more later, but I'm going to go to the sport of basketball now. I mean, you guys, if you've listened to the other podcast, you've heard me talk about the sport of football. But today I want to talk about the sport of uh, basketball. I want to talk about shooting specifically in basketball. Up until the 1930s uh, in basketball, everybody shot what they would call a two-handed set shot. You stood on the ground, you took two hands, the ball was between your waist and your shoulders, and you shot a, a two-handed set shot from your chest. 
and uh, it was um, it was the standard bear in basketball. Everybody shot that shot. Uh, the game was pretty slow. Uh, you had to be in a good position. You had to be stopped. Uh, but it was the only shot everybody, anybody took. And then in the late 1930s, and then from on, from there on, uh, people started shooting the jump shot. Now, the jump shot at the beginning was looked at as risky because uh, players were up in the air, theoretically off balance. They had the ball above their head in one hand. Uh, but it was pretty clear pretty quickly that the jump shot allowed players to move, to dribble and shoot, go left or right. Uh, took a lot less time. You could get up in the air quickly from a higher contact point when you let the ball go. There were a lot of positives about the jump shot. So the jump shot started to revolutionize basketball. And then when you looked at the techniques and skills of basketball, uh, you looked at what happened from there as opposed to everything being two-handed pass, two-handed shot. I mean, we went to a one-handed jump shot, and then all of a sudden the passing became different. Uh, a guy named Pete Maravich came along in the 60s and early 70s, and you know he passed behind his back and he dribbled between his legs and he shot from 40 feet away and he shot running hook shots and you know he was pretty much a magician with the basketball. And if you get take any time, you know go, you go on YouTube and look up some of the stuff Pete Maravich did because in the in the 1960s and early 70s he was he was he was almost impossible to play with because he was so good with the basketball people weren't ready. To play with him. They just weren't used to the things he could do with the basketball. Fast forward to the 1980s and Magic Johnson comes along and Magic Johnson was just a bigger version of Pete Maravich. Although Pete Maravich was about 6'5", Magic Johnson was a lot bigger. But just the trickiness of the pass and the deceptiveness and um, if, you, if you follow basketball now up to today, the sport of basketball and the basketball game looks almost nothing like the basketball game looked uh, back in the 1930s and 1940s. It's changed dramatically. It's gone to extreme athleticism with things being done on the basketball court that nobody would have dreamed of 50, 60, 70 years ago. And to me, that's that's a little bit like uh, uh, the evolution of setting because for so many years, I think probably all the way through the 80s, in through the 90s, even in the 2000s, you know, our players were consistently, our setters were consistently uh, when they go off to college, we, we're consistently kind of dogged by their college coaches because, you know, we taught our players at the very early age to set off one leg, to jump spin, to, to go back off their left, to uh, get around the ball. And for us, the word square up meant that when you release the ball uh, to go to the hitter, you were in a position where you were balanced and square. You might be in a position where you're in the air off one leg. You might be going back off one leg. But you, your body could do a lot of different things with the ball because the situation that the ball put you in, you had to be comfortable in all those situations. And we understood that when you get in the air off one leg, you can turn your body a lot better. When you run and jump off one leg, you can pivot and spin and get square a lot easier than when you try to stop. So there's so many things biomechanically that we understood about setting uh, that were, were grounded in the principles of biomechanics. They weren't grounded in culture. They weren't grounded in uh, you know, just traditional volleyball, but we looked at how setters should set the ball in lots of different situations. You know, there are times that you can only set the ball sideways. There are times that, uh, you know, you have to set the ball underhead. There's times that you run and jump, and by running and jumping, if you want to get square, you have to jump off one leg, which allows you to pivot and spin in the air and turn and get yourself squared. And so one of the things that we wanted setters to do, even back in the early 80s when nobody else wanted their setters to do it, is we wanted setters to work with their athleticism. We didn't want to have a set routine 
of just a few footwork patterns that you had to perform all the time. We wanted the setters to be more free-flowing, be more athletic, uh, you know, and we really spent a lot of time on hands, <clears throat> how the ball was going to be released out of the hands, making sure we had good contact with the ball on the hands, but we wanted the body to do a number of different things. And it went against the principles of a lot of coaches at the time, and, and we took a lot of flack for it because uh, we weren't going to change the way we taught setting. And so we looked at everything based on the biomechanics, how the body works, how the body works in the air, how you change direction in the air, the advantages of working off one leg as opposed to working off two legs. Uh, those are all things that come into play. And another thing that we looked at was regardless of how the body is positioned, when you arrive at the ball, if you can't get around the ball or you can't jump around the ball, you still have to be able to put the ball in the same position. The job of every setter is to put the ball in a position where the attacker can get a kill. We know that the skill of spiking is by far the most important skill that determines winning. And we understand that the job of a setter is to put up a hittable ball every single time. And so to do that, sometimes that you have to look different than you might traditionally if every ball got passed perfectly to the net, which we know doesn't happen. Another thing we always thought about when we started training setters was the younger the level of play, the worse the ball control is. So young setters need to be comfortable moving at an early age because if we teach them just one style when they're young, but the game is played completely different. The passing is not as strong. The, the dig, digging uh, from the in transition, the balls are dug way off the net. Setters have to run to the ball. So we've got to allow setters to be comfortable from an early age moving and setting. So everything based on that was one of the things that we kind of founded our principles of setting on. And, you know, the sports performance program is known for producing a lot of setters. We've had more uh, collegiate All-American setters. We've had more Division I setters than any probably any two or three clubs in the country put together. And, you know, we've done that because we focused in the early 80s on training setters completely different than anybody else was training setters. If you fast forward to now, one of the things that you see is everywhere in the world, Everywhere in the world, setters are setting. They're off one leg. There's lots of jump spinning uh, because everybody's gone to a faster tempo. If you go to a faster tempo, you have to be more agile and mobile as a setter because you have to get around the ball faster. Uh, you've got to put your body in different positions than, than, than a high ball a high ball that's passed to you where you're just going to stand under it and make the same set. And also setters are jump setting more than ever. And so one of the things that uh, uh, everybody who trains setters has to understand is that the game of volleyball evolves, especially the setting position, but most importantly, how the setters set the ball. And now uh, it's not uncommon to watch uh, top setters play. And a lot of setters, you know, they'll take half their balls off one leg. They'll, there's a lot of jump spinning, especially on the back set, because when you turn on the back set, it allows you to, to fire the ball over your right shoulder. As you pivot towards the, the left front position, you're allowed to continue through the ball to back set the ball. And so a lot of different body positions now with setting. So that's that's one of the areas that's really evolved a lot uh, in the sport of volleyball is how we look at setting. And uh, one of the things I think that's been a real positive is the ability the ability for uh, setters to adapt and improvise and progress along the way. And we just see a lot more athletic kids setting right now. I mean, it's it's really it's really it's really beautiful to watch the great setters in the world. Um, you know, they're great athletes, uh, they're physical, and they're, they're enjoyable to watch. So I think it's one of the things that uh, we've seen change a lot. Uh, and, you know, back from when we first started training setters, uh, there was so much negativity towards our kids a lot of times when they would go to college 
because the college coaches would just keep saying the same thing over and over again. They didn't realize that the biomechanics of setting um, dictated how you set the ball. They just wanted them to set the same way every single time. And so to me, it, the, the analogy is that there were so many coaches that wanted us to shoot the two-handed set shot uh, when we wanted to shoot the running jump shot. And uh, the game today is, is, if you watch a game today, there's way more of the running jump shots. Uh, nobody shoots a two-handed set shot anymore. Uh, and the, the straight-up jump shot in basketball is popular, but there's so much more movement and athleticism now, and uh, we want the setting to be the same way. So I think that's one of the areas that we looked at. So the next thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about arm swing. And the arm swing uh, issue is it's not only a biomechanical issue, but it's really a safety issue and not safety from uh, a point of view of, of danger, but it's an injury prevention issue. And uh, one of the things that coaches for years and when I first start, started coaching back in the early 80s, uh, the Eastern European countries, Poland and Russia, and, uh, you know, they had these these high, really high arm swings. And uh, it was it was kind of a style of the teams behind the Iron Curtain uh, in the Soviet bloc. Uh, the Poles, the Czechs, uh, the Russians, I mean, everybody talked about uh, get your arm up really, really high. And one of the things that coaches would tell players, you know, for decades, even you see even I even see it now. I'll watch I'll watch YouTube videos and I'll see coaches talking about it. But they talk about getting the arm up high and back so you can contact the ball at a high point. And. I think the logic of that really doesn't make a lot of sense because the ball is contacted on the follow through of the arm swing. It's not contacted on the drawback. And I think one of the things we first have to understand is we have to understand as coaches the biomechanics of the shoulder and how the shoulder functions. And um, I think one of the things that we have to look at when we look at the function of the shoulder is, um, you know, it, it flexes, it abducts, it rotates. But when you lift the elbow up really high, you know, you get into an area of impingement in your shoulder uh, that really restricts movement. And if you go through that high elbow arm swing over and over again, tens of thousands of times, uh, you're putting your shoulder in a, in a pretty restricted position. And also, it's not it's not a free flowing uh, movement and it's difficult to draw the arm up and back at a really high point. Uh, over and over again. And I think some of the times you'll see players who have that, you know, they ultimately lead to shoulder injuries. And I think first, if you look at the biomechanics of the shoulder, spiking is primarily a throwing motion uh, with your feet off the ground, following a running jump. And one of the things that we want to look at when you look at the mechanics of throwing, and if you look at any baseball or any thrower, uh, when the arm is drawn back, it's drawn back at a low level and then as it's brought through, it elevates and goes to a high level. And if you think about the, the spiking mechanics of volleyball, uh, there's really two types of spikers. There's the high drawback where the elbow is drawn back high up past the ear. And if you look at the mechanics of that, that technique, the arm has to be drawn back. And as the arm is drawn back, it has to come to a complete stop. And then it has to come back forward to attack the ball. And I think the biggest issue is the fact that the arm has to stop and go forward because it's thrown back really hard. So think about the pressure that's put on the shoulder joint as the arm is thrown back. It stops and has to come back forward, okay? That's the mechanics of your high elbow when you spike. And I think that's one of the things that you have to look at. The other way you look at the elbow is if the arm is 
pull back at a lower point, you know, shoulder level or lower, the arm is drawn back and then it works in almost a circular motion because it goes from lower to higher. And so it never really stops. And we talk a lot of times about the, the quick arm or the buggy whip arm swing where the arm is moving really quickly. Uh, you know, those, those athletes that pull their elbow back from a lower, and I'm not talking about, you know, low, you know, down by your hip, but I'm talking about at shoulder level. Uh, the elbow is at shoulder level. The hand should always be a little bit above the elbow or at least elbow height. But the arm is drawn back low, and then it's circled over the top, and, and you have a high contact point. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that you look at with, with the arm swing is those players have a tendency to be free swingers. And, you know, they just have it's, – it's, it's a little bit like the traditional bow and arrow. I mean, it's drawn back. It goes back over the top. And it, there's anywhere between a low elbow, which works circular. There's the bow and arrow, which is drawn back and then comes back through. And then there's the high elbow arm swing, which is pulled back really high, and it stops and has to come back forward. And if you look at any, any baseball player, there's no baseball player ever, no thrower that I've ever seen – that when they throw the ball, they draw the elbow back above the shoulder. It, you, it would just be the stress on the shoulder would be so great that you wouldn't be able to do that for very long. And, you know, the, the baseball players draw low and throw high. And they go over the top and they go three quarters. But the motion is always circular. The arm is drawn back low. It's thrown over the top in a circular motion. And that's, you know, that creates the greatest velocity, creates the greatest uh, arm speed. And, you know, it's how you throw the ball the fastest. It's also how you throw the ball the furthest. And I think that's one of the things that we want to, as coaches, we want to think about how we teach, especially how we teach our young players, because the mechanics of throwing uh, are one of the things that we need to teach young athletes at a very, very early age. And if you grow up playing softball or playing baseball, then you're going to have probably very, very solid arm swing mechanics for, for spiking a volleyball. Uh, you're just going to have a natural throwing motion, which is the best way to spike. I mean, there's really no two ways about it. The, the natural throwing motion is the best way to spike. You, you, you obviously have to – your approach and the way you work your feet and you know, what you do with your body in the air and how you lift your you know, non-hitting arm up to the ball, those are all things that play into uh, the equation. But how you look at – uh, uh, the arm swing mechanics are going to be really important. If you're a youth coach and your players don't have natural throwing mechanics, then you should spend a lot of time on throwing. And throwing is throwing. I mean, just uh, throw from the ground, run a jump and throw, you know, take your approach and throw. We throw these little badminton birdies or we throw tennis balls or just the arm swing and the mechanics of throwing are things that are going to be really important. Once players understand the arm swing and the biomechanics of throwing, uh, they become a lot better attackers. But I think one of the things that that we've done a, that that we've done in a disservice to players over the years is to tell the players that they if they want to hit high, they have to draw their arm back high. There's absolutely no uh, rationale behind that that statement. There's no biomechanical uh, evidence behind that statement. And in fact, it's just the opposite. I mean, the fastest arm swings. Uh, are drawn back low and they circle over the top. And also they're the best free swingers. I mean, they draw back, they can hit the ball forever. There's really no pressure on the shoulder uh, when the elbow is drawn back below the shoulder because there's really no impingement. The impingement comes when you get the arm up high, drawn back at a high point, and then you have almost bone on bone within the shoulder. It puts a lot more stress on the shoulder, on the sh in the shoulder area. So uh, you see a lot of uh, bicep tendonitis, a lot of uh, other issues when you have that high elbow motion because it just puts the shoulder 
uh, in a more restrictive area emotion and the, the, the damage to the shoulder long term uh, is, is greater. Uh, the chances of shoulder injuries are much greater if you have that high arm swing because over years and years, you're going to have tens of thousands of repetitions and you can hit with that loose low elbow motion, which doesn't require, uh, uh, a lot of stress doesn't put much stress on the shoulder or you get the elbow way back and it, it creates a lot of stress. And I think that's one of the things that we as coaches want to be very careful about. And one of the things I would suggest for every coach is to study the biomechanics of spiking. Look at how the arm should be drawn back. I mean, I think there's there's two or three simple teaching points. Draw your elbow back at shoulder level or slightly lower. Have your hand above your elbow as it's drawn back, but the elbow is key to be drawn back at a fairly low level. If you get your elbow up high above your ear and draw it back uh, uh, at a high point, your arm cannot work in a circular motion. It's going to have to stop and come back forward. That's going to create different stresses on your shoulder, and I think we as coaches want to make sure that we do this the right way because the, the skill of hitting is so crucial to success in volleyball. Uh, and also, if you're an attacker, a middle, or you're a uh, outside hitter, any position that you hit, you know, if you can't hit for a high level, you're not going to be on the court. I mean, if you're an attacker, uh, so it's one of the things that we as coaches want to make sure, especially club coaches and youth coaches and, and even school coaches, we have to understand the biomechanics of how the shoulder works. I think it's one of the things that we have to do, and we can't, we cannot pay enough attention to that at an early age. So we teach kids how to swing their arms the right way. So I think that's one of the key points as well. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is the pre-hop. And you know, over the years, you know, we our club has has traveled to Japan to play probably on 15 different occasions. So I've been really fortunate to watch uh, the best high school level volleyball players from a skill point of view. I'm not talking about size or power, but just the execution of skill. I've been fortunate enough to watch the best players in the world play the game. The game is played at the highest level from a skill point of view uh, at the, in the Japanese high schools. And, you know, it's, it's really not up for debate that, that the skill level uh, of, you know, the 16, 17, 18 year old skill level there is higher than anywhere else. I mean, you have high school teams in Japan that practice 350, 360 days a year. They practice five, six hours a day. Um, you know, they've been playing volleyball since they were really young age. Just their, their total skills, uh, skill sets are just phenomenal. I mean, they, they play the game at such a high level. And, uh, you know, the, they're all the, all the Japanese teams, college, national teams, you know, they're so undersized. Uh, you know, it's really an outlier for a Japanese team to ever win a match at the international level. But the Japanese national team consistently uh, is one of the top seven or eight teams in the world. Uh, they, they won as far as in London. They won a bronze medal uh, at the Olympic Games with a five foot two setter and literally, you know, went across the front row. You know, they have no subs at the international level, one and six. So she had to play all the time. But the skill level of the Japanese was so high because they do things so well. They just don't make many mistakes. So, uh, but the one thing they're known for is they play phenomenal defense. I mean, it's, it's beyond phenomenal. I mean, they dig and they pursue and they keep balls in play uh, that nobody else in the world can do. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's really a beauty to watch unless you're playing against them that it's frustrating. But uh, they're just, they play the game at such a high level. And I think one of the things that, uh, we saw at a really early age, back in the, back in the uh, early 80s when we started going to Japan, was how good they were at digging the ball. I mean, when somebody would hit the ball, they could dig almost any ball. And part of it is because they practiced it a lot. 
Um, but another thing is their biomechanics, they do it so much that they've become so efficient at uh, first contact skills, especially digging. Uh, you know, and one of the things that they do is, you know, they load and they pre-hop. And one of the things that we argue a lot about over here, and I've talked to coaches at the highest level, we argue about should we pre-hop, should we not pre-hop, but the best players in the world pre-hop. And um, it, it's just, it's really not up for debate. And for so long, it was up for debate. Coaches, college coaches would tell our kids when they got to college, keep your feet stopped, don't move your feet. And, you know, it's, it's, there's no question you don't want to move your feet the wrong way, but there's also no question that creating a stretch reflex or loading or a, a light pre-hop is absolutely more efficient than no pre-hop at all. And, and another sport I'm going to talk about is tennis. If you go to tennis, watch the best tennis players in the world. Watch the men who hit the ball over 100 miles an hour. They, they pre-hop on every time they receive serve because they load up so they can move to their left or to their right, to their short or go back, but they're loading so they can move and react from the load. They're not standing flat-footed. It goes kind of goes back to the law of physics about an object that's in motion has a tendency to stay in motion. So you see this in tennis at the highest level when the ball comes at extremely fast pace. Tennis players pre-hop on every serve. They pre-hop and load to be ready to receive the ball that comes at them because they don't know where the ball is going to be. Okay, you see the same thing also in baseball now. I mean, if you look at baseball infielders now, softball and baseball, infielders are being taught that when the pitcher releases the ball, you'll see all four infielders hop and load their legs so when they come down, they can react in any different position, in any, any, any direction. And I think it's one of the things that, again, for so many years, Coaches couldn't make up their mind whether they wanted to hop or not hop. And it's just a matter of doing it in the right way. But we call it loading as opposed to pre-hopping because as the ball is contacted, we want to load the legs. We want to make sure we're in a good position to move in any direction. But I think it's one of the things that absolutely needs to be done. And I read an article by, I think, the USA men's national team, Libro, maybe the second Libro on the team. But one of the things he talked about was now at the international men's level, because the jump serve is coming so fast, they're loading on service. They're pre-hopping and they're loading their legs uh, on service. So when the ball is tossed to be jump served, as the spiker gets ready to contact the ball, uh, the Libros and probably the other passers as well are loading. And sometimes they're loading from a parallel position. Sometimes they're loading from a split position to a parallel position. But they're using that stretch reflex mechanism to load their legs so they can react to the ball wherever it is. Uh, you even see this in blocking now. You're talking about blocking where middle blockers are loading as the ball is set. So they can either jump for the quick set to block the quick set or they can move right or left. But the concept of loading, pre-hopping, whatever you're going to call it, which it, it's, it's a stretch reflex or an initiation movement prior to uh, or as the ball is contacted is one of the things that uh, we think is something that's very important to teach players. We've seen it in Japan for almost 40 years. I mean, the Japanese kids dig today like they dug in the early 80s. They've always been great on defense. And if you watch any Japanese player, the minute the ball's hit at them hard, you know, they've, they've made that initial load so they can react and move in any direction. Because they don't know, at, at an early age, they load because there's a lot of running and chasing the ball down because the ball's not hit very hard. And the Japanese, especially the Japanese, the Asians, but especially the Japanese, they run a lot of 
pursuit stuff with their young players so they don't stand in one place. They get used to running and, and you know, able to get on the floor, roll and dive and sprawl and, you know, side slide and those kind of things. But one of the things that's key is, you know, the ability to move and react once you've loaded yourself. And I think that's the big thing for, um, you know, this concept of loading. And you still see it today. I mean, some coaches will tell you don't move. And if you do not move, I'll tell you when don't move works. Don't move only works when you know every ball is going to be hit between your knees. If you know every ball is going to be hit to you, then you're already in a good position to dig. But if you don't know where the ball is going to go, then you need to be able to react in the quickest manner. And if you have a chance to cheat, and that's what loading is, it's that it's that pre-hop or that slight load movement that lets you go in any direction because you've already started to initiate action or initiate motion and movement. So it's one of the things I think that are key. So that's another area that you know we've we've tried to we've tried to talk with our kids a lot about. We try to talk from, again, a biomechanical point of view because it absolutely uh, – and, again, the evolution in tennis and baseball is amazing because they're doing exactly the same thing that the Japanese volleyball players were doing 40 years ago. I mean, tennis players have now – they load to move. Baseball players load to move the infield. You'll see an infield. All four infielders will hop as the ball's pitched, so they're in a good position to react to the ball. So, you know, those are those are the three big lies, and by that I don't mean, you know, coaches were going out lying intentionally trying to make people do the wrong thing but you know if you look at setting footwork and the evolution of setting work over the last you know four decades the setters have gotten so much more mobile they've gotten so much more athletic the pace of the game is so much faster and the pace of the game today could not be like it is if setters were doing the same thing they were doing back in the 80s i mean the setters have had to change their mobility uh, and they've had to change the way they set the ball. And it's a, it's a much funner game to watch. I mean, it's just more appealing. It's more attractive. Uh, it's a beautiful game. Uh, it was always a beautiful game, but it's much more beautiful now because the tempo of the offenses are faster. The rallies are long. The athleticism is more, per, uh, you know, pronounced. So it's a great, it's one of the things that's really beautiful to watch. Uh, with the arm swing stuff that we talked about, it really is important for as a coach to understand the biomechanics of throwing and spiking. It, I, I can't stress that enough to you as a coach, you know, to think about how you're going to instruct your players. And if you see players that have that high elbow or somebody's taught them to get that elbow back really high, you know, how can you, how can you maybe modify that technique and, and make it a little bit smoother and take the kids out of position so they're not maybe there's not as much stress on the structure of the shoulder joint. There's not as great a chance that they're going to have long-term maybe potential injuries to that shoulder uh, from overuse and just from the biomechanics that aren't aren't proper biomechanics. And again, go back to how people throw. Look at throwers. You know, if you're if you've ever played a game, grab a ball and throw it. Look where your elbow goes back and look where your arm goes over. And I think that's one of the key things to look at. And then the last thing is the the pre-hop. I mean, think about. Think about what you've been told. Think about what you teach your players. Do you teach pre-hop? Do you teach nothing? Uh, do you tell your players to stand still and not move? If you do tell your players to stand still and not move, not move then why do you do that? How will they pursue a ball if they're actually static as opposed to in motion? And it's not it's not cheating. It's not one of the things I think that that I think you want to understand as uh, a coach is it's just it's the biomechanics of being able to move as quick as possible. And you want to, again, watch it, watch the best tennis players receive serve. You know, look what baseball is doing now. And all along across all areas, if you have an idea that there's going to be a ball coming in your direction, but you don't know where it's going to be, people are starting to initiate motion or or uh, uh, load that stretch reflex in their legs 
so they can move quicker. And I think that's one of the things that you see out of the, the pre-hop. And the fact that the, the men's Libros uh, across the world are now starting to pre-hop on the jump serve uh, because the ball's coming at such a fast pace um, tells me that, you know, they're just trying to create they're trying to create an advantage for themselves from a movement point of view. So, um, you know, those are my those are my thoughts on the three big lies, uh, again, which aren't aren't lies, but they're what I would call misconceptions and maybe lack of understanding of proper biomechanics. And again, when we coach skills and techniques, we should always be guided by the principles of biomechanics. I mean, we always want to do things in the fo- most efficient manner uh, with the, the, the least amount of energy so we can be efficient. We, and they, we want those skills to be repeatable over and over again. Uh, and again, we want to be as efficient as possible when we're doing them. So wishing everybody the best and um, uh, be talking to you soon and I hope everybody's well and uh, stay safe.